Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're hearing uh, the title song from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom from the motion picture soundtrack of the same name as, a por- as performed by Branford Marsalis and Maxine Lewis. I hope I'm saying Max Maxine. Not sure uh, her name correctly. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a film, a- film adaptation of August Wilson's 1982 play. Um, we're going to talk about that today on the nose. We are also going to talk about Tenet. Uh, it's very fortunate because that we've combined these two things because in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, there's a mysterious door in the rehearsal room, and it actually turns out to connect to an airport that's in Tenet. Uh, so the, like, the whole thing just kind of emerges together at a certain point. Uh, no, not really. Joining us today uh, by Zoom, Tom Breen, film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent, host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus, deep focus. I didn't say it right the first time. Uh, Mercy Quay, uh, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. So uh, they're both regular and longtime panelists. Before we kind of sound them out uh, on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, let's hear a little bit uh, from the film. You're going to hear um, Coleman Domingo, the amazing Coleman Domingo, as Cutler, uh, Chadwick Boseman as Levy, uh, Glenn Turman as Toledo, a piano player. I've kind of fallen in love with this 73-year-old actor, Glenn Turman, uh, lately. And Michael Potts as Slow Drag. These are musicians. They are in the rehearsal room. Uh, Levy is the, by far the youngest of the musicians. That's the Chadwick Boseman character. He's kind of a preening dandy who also believes that his talent, his creative ability, will somehow allow him to supersede the fate uh, of black men and black artists uh, in the era of the st- of the, in which the story takes place. So let's hear a little bit of that. If you want to be one of them, uh, what you call a virtuosos or something, you're in the wrong place. You ain't no King Oliver or Buddy Bowles. Just an old trumpet player coming down a dozen talking about our... What is you? I don't see your name in lights. Oh, I just play the piece, whatever they want. I don't criticize other people's music. I ain't like you, color. I got talent. Oh, Me and this horn, we tight. If my daddy had a note I was going to turn out like this, he would have named me Gabriel. Oh, I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I done give Mr. Stutterman some of my songs I wrote, and he said he's going to let me record them when I get my band together. I just got to finish the last part of this song. I know how to play real music, not this old jug band. 
I got style. Oh, everybody got style. Style ain't nothing but keeping the same idea from beginning to end. Everybody got it. Everybody can't play like I do. Everybody can't have their own band. Well, until you get your own band, you can play what you want. You just play the piece and stop complaining. So we should also say that Ma Rainey was a real musical historical figure um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, the film is set, I believe, in 1912, uh, kind of at the dawn of the recording uh, era as well. So I've already introduced the panelists. Mercy, kind of get us started here. Um, this is a play. This is a play that's making its way to the screen. Um, Wilson's work has been uh, staged extensively uh, in uh, Connecticut over the years. Uh, I think. Um, really led by the work of Lloyd Richards. Uh, but uh, just how did this land for you? How did it work? Uh, how, what, how, how good a transition did Ma Rainey make? Yeah, I think it, it transitions beautifully and in a way that um, some other plays that we've seen adapted to the screen um, don't transition as well or have the criticism that they just took a play and shot it like a play and didn't actually make that transition at all. Um, you know, in the in the uh, emails, we were talking about how Fences does does that. I think that there's a few other examples um, for me that I won't get into. But for me, this works as a play. There are pieces, and I mean, immediately after watching it, I went and uh, purchased the hard copy of August Wilson's play, so I can kind of go back and read it for myself. Um, there are pieces of this that I don't even imagine. I can't imagine how it would have been able to work if adapted to you know the viewers uh, um uh, uh sort of expecting eyes of a regular film right you you get this sort of uh waiting for godot um style of uh musicians trapped in a room just waiting for the arrival of marini and waiting to be able to perform um and uh, the the scenes are shot effectively in two rooms for the entirety of the film and for me, the pacing of the dialogue, um, this, the staging of the characters, the blocking, and everything about it works exceptionally as though you are watching it on stage. And I think for 2020, the experience, and I was just talking to Tom about this, the experience that I missed the most is being able to see stage plays. Um, and for me, this actually replaced that quite finely. If you were an older person, you would have had a chance to have seen it um, in Connecticut before anybody else did. It was developed at the Eugene O'Neill Playwriting Conference in Waterford, Connecticut, and then uh, debuted, I believe, at Yale Rep before it went anywhere else, before it went to Broadway. Uh, but uh, so many of August Wilson's plays kind of traveled a similar track uh, back in those days. So, Tom, yeah, no, since we've kind of opened up this box, I mean, I want to get to the blood and bones uh, of this play pretty quickly, but... Um, you know, Mercy's, I think, you know, very correct in saying that there's a way in which this there's a claustrophobic quality that's intentional. But they also do a lot of exterior shots. We should even point out that the play begins on a note of, of misdirection. You see young black men running fast through the night in a southern forested landscape. And it just, uh, I think all, everybody's mind just flashes to the idea that they're runaway slaves or they're about to be lynched or some horrible thing is about to happen. It turns out they are running toward uh, a beautiful, uh, lighted country stage where Ma Rainey uh, is performing. Uh, and, and so it's it's really not fair, probably, to say that they just filmed the play. Uh, I guess the question is, did they do enough more than that uh, to, to kind of make it a, a real screen product? 
Yeah, I think that opening scene is a great example of the cinematic realization of this movie. Not not only do we see those young men running in dark woods, but we also hear dogs barking. I mean, there are lots of kind of visual and oral indications that this is a, a threatening moment. And instead, as you said, they're running to make sure to get online to see the incredible Ma Rainey. And then what does the camera do? The camera, which of course does not exist in theater, but is unique to, to moving pictures, you see it zoom in on Ma on the stage beneath the tent as she is, you know, leaning into one of her seductive and insatiable and irresistible numbers. You see the camera do the exact same with Levy's trumpet. And then we have this great, uh, great migration montage, uh, complete with still and moving images as we track the migration of this band and of, you know, so many African-Americans from the deep South to Chicago. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is the, the second film adaptation of, uh, Ameri of August Wilson's uh, American Century Cycle plays with Fences coming out in 2016 being the first. And we were talking a bit before this show about how, you know, one of the criticisms levied against that movie directed by Denzel Washington was that it was a, a pretty straight, you know, just filmed version of a play, not too much inventive camera work, uh, not a lot of montage. It's just kind of the images stepping out of the way and letting these titanic actors and characters do their thing. We get a lot more cinema in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The montage, uh, the close-ups in particular, there's this one moment that I can't get out of my head of Viola Davis as Ma Rainey chugging a bottle of Coca-Cola, one of three right before she's about to perform uh, one, of, one of her songs in the recording studio. And everything, I mean, yes, there, there is nothing that can't be done on theater with you know chugging a bottle of coke but the way that the camera just zooms in singles out that detail is one of particular interest for the viewer uh, for that particular scene communicates everything about what viola davis brings to that role again that insatiable almost like lascivious quality to her that stubborn quality uh holding on to the sweet parts of life despite everyone trying to pull it away from her um you can't get that on theater you can't single out a single detail in the way that you can in cinema and i think george c wolf does enough of that to make this really rewarding cinematic experience we should say wolf is mainly a stage director which makes it makes this all even more interesting uh won a tony award for directing angels in america a millennium approaches among other uh, works so i, I do want to kind of delve a little bit into these characters. I mean, it. there really are two primary characters with nominally opposing points of view. It's Ma uh, and then it's Levy, this trumpet player played by Chadwick Boseman. So let's begin with Ma, uh, Mercy. I mean, first of all, just, there's just sort of no denying that Viola Davis has done this amazing thing. She's, I think, becoming, you know, another Daniel Day-Lewis, a kind of actor who just so completely disappears into the role that you can barely see any trace of the person that you know uh, is there. And she plays Ma with this kind of regal hauteur that you sense is, you know, a never given inch kind of toughness that conceals I think anyway, her belief that if she ever did give an inch, if she allowed the tiniest crack to appear, the white man would just overrun her and rule everything. That the reason that she's kind of a bully is that she has no other choice. I don't know. How did you, how did you read that performance? How, how was it for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that one, you're absolutely right. Viola Davis is a complete chameleon. And I think in many ways, she's even called herself this, the black uh, Meryl Streep. Right. Um, and well, she sort of said it, said it pejoratively when she said it as a, as a point of not making as much money as Meryl Streep. But I think for me, the way this performance landed was um, 
she let go of any, you know, uh, character that we might have gotten used to seeing her in. And I think that we get really used to really visceral shots of Viola Davis. Um, we get used to the crying. We get used to um, the vulnerable, um, uh, downtrodden character. And even in some of her, in the character, you know, uh, uh, when she's playing Annalise Keating in How to Get Away with Murder, she is the protagonist who's on the top of the world and controls everything, but doesn't quite have what Ma Rainey has. And I think what you get to there, Colin, is what she's got is this understanding that her music is the thing that these white folks want. And if she gives an inch, right, if she compromises in any, any way, it's no longer her music, right? Um, she, she's got the ticket quite literally from, from the South to the North to record this album. She's got the ticket. And, um, you know, figuratively in that, she knows that her music is going to sell for these producers and she, and because of that, she calls the shots. I think what's one thing that's really interesting for me about the character as it's written for Ma and Levy is there's this very clear juxtaposition of, you know, a black person in the time of great migration who understands that the economy that we've created for ourselves in the South is, is sustaining. It's self-sustaining. It is self, you know, it is reaffirming. Um, and it is, rewarding all on its own. And if I, if I venture out into an economy that I don't control, that is controlled by white people, right? I need to be able to do it on my terms. Whereas Levy, Levy says that this is actually the avenue, right? Um, venturing out into this economy that I don't control, that's controlled by white people, is the avenue through which I can, you know, a attain any kind of notoriety or fame, right? And, and because of that, while he thinks he has a handle, on his situation, he keeps giving an inch, hoping that he'll get a, a mile later on down the road. And we we see how these two characters um, navigate their experiences uh, during the Great Migration, right? And shot in uh, place in the 1920s as black individuals. And it's, it is it is a stark difference. And, you know, Ma does it successfully and we come and find out that Levy doesn't. Um, before I have time to react to all that, let's hear a little bit of this remarkable performance by Davis. Uh, you hear her here with Jeremy Shamos as Irvin, who's kind of a, she calls him his ma her manager at one or two occasions. He seems to be a little bit more than that, kind of the guy who's putting together this recording deal with the recording company. Uh, here's a little of their back and forth. That's what people want now, Ma. They want something they can dance to. Levy's arrangement gives the people what they want. It makes them excited. It makes them forget about their troubles. I don't care what you say, honey. Levy ain't messing up my song. Now, if he got what the people want, let him take it somewhere else. I'm singing my Rainy song. I ain't singing no Levy song. Now, that's all there is to it. Well, we just figured... Who's this we? What do you mean we come talking this we, sir? Who we? Me and Sturdivan. We decided... We decided, huh? I'm just a bump on a log. I'm just going to go whichever way the river drift. Is that it? You and Sturdivant decided? No, we just thought... I ain't got no good sense. I don't know none of my music. I don't know what a good song is. What ain't. You know more about my fans than I do. It's not that, Ma. It's more of what the people want. I'll tell you something, Irvin. And you can go up there. You can tell Sturdivant, too. What you all say don't count with me. You understand? Ma, listen to her heart. Ma, listen to the voice inside her. That's what count with Ma. Okay. Ma, I don't care. You know, I just thought... Well, damn what you thought! 
What you look like trying to tell me how to sing my song? That's 11 straight of me. I ain't going for it. All right. So um, both uh, Jonathan McPants, the producer of this episode, and I have independently thought that Davis occasionally seemed to be either consciously or otherwise using some of the intonations and beats of Denzel Washington, who is producing uh, this thing. There's like ways in which she's just kind of kind of. doing a little Denzel thing uh, with uh, some of her intonations. So, um, so Tom, yeah, let's, let's talk about this performance. I mean, in a way, it's a performance in which the self is mostly buried. What we really are seeing is the uh, incredible armature that this character carries around. Oh, I love that you use the word armature because one of my you know fa- favorite images of the movie is uh, Viola Davis as Ma Rainey when she's made it to the studio. Do you remember when she's sitting in that upholstered chair, you know, with like a lamp and on on top of a carpet? <laughs> it's just like she's fashioning this little, you know, uh, her her small uh, private kind of courtroom or, or palace uh, out of this relatively dingy studio. Um, so for uh, first, um, I want to talk for a second about how exceptional of a character Ma Rainey is uh, in the work of August Wilson more broadly. Now, warning, definitely not an August Wilson expert, but from my understanding, I mean, characters like Levy, these, you know, young men uh, or just men um, who are able to craft these whole worlds out of their words, these schemers, these really ambitious, idealistic people, you know, pretty familiar to to Wilson's plays and also to the movie Fences. Ma Rainey is is something else. She's a queer black woman who is not defined by her relationship to another man, uh, who's not kind of a long suffering presence, but rather, you know, if this is a, a bit of a literal upstairs, downstairs drama, Ma Rainey is upstairs for most of it. I mean, she is the one who has creative control through force of personality, through force of will, through sheer talent. Um, she's able to dictate a lot of the terms of, you know, of, of what happens over the course of this movie and her career. Um, and she she makes it happen. And Viola Davis imbues all of that stubbornness, all, all of that strength. And we see over the course of the play that, yes, while, while Ma Rainey um, is certainly not the, the big winner in this American cultural landscape that exploits Black people for every single thing they're worth in order to enrich white people, um, she's also, she's, she's not the big loser at the end of this, um, at the end of this, this movie as well. Um, unfortunately, that falls to another character's lot. And I think what Viola Davis does for Ma Rainey through her makeup, through her physical presence, uh, taking up as much space in the room as possible and refusing to give an inch, I think it's just something that I, I won't be able to get out of my head anytime soon. Uh, and I'm so grateful that that this performance in the way that Ma Rainey's music uh, is captured on, on records for people to listen to after the 1920s. I'm so grateful that Viola Davis's performance here is captured on on movie, not film, or whatever this is, uh, for future generations to enjoy and contemplate, because it's it's something spectacular. So, Mercy, at the beginning, you were talking about the fact that this had a sort of Beckett Godot quality in the sense that there were these men who are kind of trapped in this downstairs, windowless, and apparently rather airless room, and and they're really kind of talking about someone who hasn't arrived, uh, Amara Rainey. Uh, but uh, they are, there's a generational difference. Uh, there are uh, most of the musicians are, are older men, and then there's this young trumpet player played by Bozeman. Uh, it's his last performance, uh, and there's a sense in which you feel that uh, he is in real life doomed, uh, and that some of that doom also is is there on the screen for us to see. Um, but what's interesting. And I, I, I really think you kind of nailed it is a lot of this movie is these kind of conversations 
uh, bordering on speech making that go on among these men about their worldviews. Uh, sometimes it's metaphysics or religion, uh, but it it's it could be boring, you know, but it just isn't. There's something riveting about what's going on. But it's all bouncing off this one guy, right, Levy, who is just challenging them at every turn. Tell us more about who or what you see in, in this character. Yeah, I mean, I see the manifestation of black trauma, <laughs> right? And I think that, you know, when we first meet Levy, he has spent a week's salary on the new pair of shoes, and this is his prized possession. I went back to that scene and actually to see if we ever saw his original pair of shoes once he once he had the new shoes in hand. And for me, that was sort of significant that we never saw him take off the old pair of shoes. We just saw him put on the new pair. He went from and so in that scene, he sort of goes from barefoot to um, to, uh, you know, ornately clad. Um, and this is his prized possession that he spent an entire week's salary on. And I mean, as you mentioned, Colin, we see him challenging these older, more seasoned musicians left and right. And one thing that um, we see from Bozeman, I just, you can't ever underestimate how how much losing a substantial amount of weight can can uh, reverse age you. Mm. Bozeman just looks like a child in this. Mm. And um, even even so, I think his performance is, is well beyond what um, we expect from the child very clearly. And it, I think he upstages even um, Domingo in the room, who we've seen in a great deal of um, shows, and the uh, bass player and the pianist, who um, th- their names slipped me at the moment, but have were both in had had roles in The Wire, right? Um, yeah, really seasoned. The, actors. the pianist is Glenn Turman, who played the mayor of Baltimore in The Wire, and who recently uh, also had a fabulous turn in the fourth season of Fargo, where he played mm-hmm. a character named Doctor Senator. Uh, and and I I just did want I wanted to just I want to turn it back over to you for a second, but I just wanted to grab this moment to say I'm really kind of falling in love with this guy's work. Particularly, he's 73 years old now, and he's just doing you know this terrific work. He has had this amazing career where he started directing things like I don't know Dallas or Knots Landing or something shows that had no black characters on them, but was able to yeah you know, actually get work directing episodes of stuff like that. Maybe inhabiting a world not too different from some of what we. See portrayed there and and he's just terrific in this he has several kind of central roles even at the beginning does kind of lay out this tenet like uh, um, premise of space and time being much more mutable than people believe he says at one point uh, what the hell do you think I was saying things change the air and everything now you, you're going to be saying it was you saying it you're going to put two propositions on the same track run them into each other and because they crash you're going to say it's the same track train that could be a line out of tenet <laughs> but but anyway <laughs> right. but anyway continue with what you were saying i'm sorry for interrupting no no not at all and i think that you know even that that interaction there so uh are we doing spoilers can we can we dive into and dissect the film completely well i don't think we should just, i mean the ending is a bit of a shock and i don't think we should wreck it okay so there are moments where um, a, lar- a large event happens. And for me, I go back and I think, you know, why was it this character? Um, and, you know, we're looking at the first interactions between Levy and uh, the other musicians. And that the first time we get to see the sort of um, contrarian nature that Levy brings is when he runs up against a closed door, right? And this is what this character is doing consistently. He's just running up against a closed door 
over and over. And um, he's challenged by uh, Toledo is, is the character's name. And Toledo's just saying, you know, things change all the time and, and you needn't be upset by the, the way things are changing sort of as a way to say you're not in control and that's okay. Um, and when we see, when Levy, uh, when it becomes apparent to Levy himself that in fact, this character, um, what he was told at the beginning of the film was, was uh, true when he sort of shot down by one of the um, producers, we actually see how um, the whole thing comes full circle and the, the full manifestation of, you know, black, the harm um, incurred by, uh, you know, just his lived trauma as a black kid being raised in the South um, comes to a head and comes to a head in a way that for me, Fulls like a full circle moment. And I took I took a moment and, and Tom, I'm interested in what your what your thoughts are here. I'm sort of struggling to not say what the end is, but um I took a moment to see why this la why these particular characters end up being that final um together in that final scene. Um and not for instance, um Cutler, not for instance the um the bass player. But slow drag, the great name of slow drag. Slow drag, <laughs> right? Um, and for me, it was because there was there was a sheer challenge to the idea that Levy had control. Yeah, I mean, I if if I may if I may weigh in, I mean, I think that we see a parallel kind of intergenerational conflict between Ma Rainey and Levy on the one hand, and then also Toledo. And Levy. I mean, Levy, the way Levy relates to Cutler and slow drag, it is in a much more kind of professional and functional context. Those two men see themselves as, you know, consummate, um, you know, backup band players and they see a role they have to fill and they're irked that Levy doesn't want to fill it because he's got too big of a sense of self, but they try to craft into it. Toledo has a little something else going on. He has a, he's got a world, he's got a worldview um, about how, about how black people fit in the kind of history and cultural landscape of America, how he, he um, thinks that the way that Levy, Levy lives his life is something that is um, that is detrimental to the the black man's uh, striving for equality, for dignity, uh, for everything that you know. August Wilson so famously uh, used the vernacular of his characters to elevate to these really you know ele elevate these themes of world historical significance. I think that the way, same way that we see Levy butting heads with Ma Rainey over her creative control, we see him butting heads with Toledo because of his kind of ideological control about what is the best path forward for Black people in America. Um, I also love Glenn Turman. I mean, he's got a long career to be very proud of going back to Cooley High in the 1970s as well, uh, kind of a foundational coming of age movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chadwick Boseman, what a talent, what, what, a, what a loss for, you know, for, for cinema. Um, he was probably most famous for imbuing every single one of his his historical characters with great dignity. Uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and of course, you know, not historical, but King Chala in, in Black Panther. Here we see the more, you know, he was James Brown and Get On Up. Here we see that overflowing energy. There is so much life in him. And Mercy, if, if you singled out the running up against the closed door as emblematic of Levy, I think for me, you know, responding to Toledo's chastising, not just with words, but by lifting his trumpet to his face and blowing a note right in his face. Right. I mean, there's there's too much there's too much in Levy um, to to be confined by words. He has to lift his horn to play it as well. Yeah, there are there is one moment where he comes completely unglued, and it it is 
Uh, I just found it a completely riveting scene. I think in the hands of a lesser actor, uh, it might have seemed seemed overwritten or a little bit forced. It seems nothing like that. This is when he is reprimanding God. Um, we have to stop there, uh, except that I don't think any of us would hesitate to recommend this to you. Uh, it might be a movie for some of you that you have to give it a chance to warm you up and for you to warm up to it. Uh, there are some ways in which, uh, after some interesting montage work at the beginning that Tom has described, it does fall into a rhythm of people kind of almost making speeches to one another. But these are really, really good speeches, and uh, certainly Wilson's uh, language is, is amazing, and then it becomes so much more and very exciting. So Ma Rainey's about Black Bottom available to you right this very second on Netflix. When we come back, uh, we will discuss and Tom will explain the movie Tenet. Oh, Lord. These dogs are mine. They shall do me all the We are back. This is The Nose on a not-its-usual day. Uh, joining us today is Tom Breen, film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent, host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. Mercy Quay is the founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project uh, and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. Uh, we are now about to talk about the movie Tenet. It is directed by Christopher Nolan. He of Memento and Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and Inception and Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar and Dunkirk. And Tenet. Uh, this was going to supposed to be kind of one of the big theatrical releases, uh, uh, probably of the kind of I guess Labor Day weekend I'm seeing here. Uh, but it was one of the things that was supposed to fill up the theaters back when you could imagine anything filling up theaters. Uh, it stars John David Washington, son of Denzel Washington. You see, I should say, John David Washington is scheduled to do yet another August Wilson movie, The Piano Lesson, uh, once again produced by Denzel Washington. Uh, and I don't know how far along the pipeline that movie is, but th that would just sort of bring everything together, I guess. Um, so, um, and also a terrific supporting cast, which I'm sure we will talk about. Uh, but let's not, let's just begin with a little clip. You're going to hear Robert Pattinson, you know who he is. He plays the enigmatic Neil and John David Washington, whose character is known as protagonist. Here they are. Well, I've seen too much. I'm still alive, which must mean you've decided to trust me. Or maybe I lost my edge. Yeah, edge is still intact. There's a cold war. Nuclear. Temporal. <laughs> Time travel. No. Technology that can invert an object's entropy. You mean reverse chronology? Like Feynman and Wheeler's notion of a positron as an electron moving backwards in time. Sure, that's exactly what I meant. Other masters in physics. And we'll try and keep up. Well, the implications of this are beyond secret. Then why'd you bring me in? I thought we'd find a drawing in a couple boxes of bullets. No surprise as I was. I'm going back to Mumbai to get some answers. I'll set you up as a go-between, but remember to you, it's all about plutonium. And when we're done, they'll kill you. Why do you have to do that anyway? I'd rather be my decision. So would I. I think. 
So that's the second person on the show today to sound like Denzel Washington without actually being Denzel Washington. Um, all right. So, uh, Mercy, uh, that explains the whole thing, right? I mean, you know, we, we don't really need to say anything more about the movie. You know, it just explains itself right there. I, I want someone actually, I'm, I, the reason I showed up today was for one of you guys explain this movie to me. I, um, what I get about this movie is that Denzel Washington's son is the protagonist. <laughs> That's what I get about this movie. I, but I think in the movie, in the film's defense, I also didn't quite get uh, Inception. And I think this is, you know, this, uh, this, <laughs> decades, I don't want to say decade, actually, I don't remember when Inception came out, but, you know, the inception of the last five years, this this generation's inception, if you will, and I am not sure what's going on. Several times during watching it, I I, I couldn't figure it out, and then they would say, I, I imagine that they do things, they're doing things in this movie um, similar to how I treat my husband, who is a mechanical engineer, Right. Like I sometimes say a concept that is a real concept, but then I apply it to things that aren't real or make sense. And I want him to figure it out. Right. You get what I'm saying. You put this together. And that's how I feel like I finally empathize with my husband in this one because I don't quite get what's going on. But entropy is a thing. Right. Entropy is 100 percent a thing. And outside of that, I don't quite get anything about this movie. I'd love to be um, schooled today if someone can can help me along. Well, someone is probably going to have to be Tom. I guess it's sort of worth noting that um, it, it does kind of have the, the skeleton uh, of a Bond movie in the sense that John David Washington does play kind of suave and intrepid protagonist, although uh, at the very beginning of the movie, it's point out, pointed out essentially that he doesn't dress in a sufficiently bespoke way uh, to be Bond. They don't say that, but he's got a Brooks Brothers suit on and that just won't do. The amazing Elizabeth Debicki plays Kat uh, in a very similar role to the one she played in The Night Manager. She is the wife uh, to uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, who is the Bond villain of this. Sator? Sator? Well, I forget how he says it. Uh, Tom will clarify all, all of this stuff. But, but it, it, it does somehow or other involve a war in which time, the ability to move about in time, is one of the weapons deployed by the bad against the righteous. But Tom, uh, it's time now. Explain this damn movie to us. You know, when you when you play that clip from Tenet, I thought that's what I say to Lucy around the house all the time. It's all about the plutonium. Right. Now, um, I uh, I actually don't think that this. So, uh, Mercy, I was hoping that as the as the space nerd in this group, that you'd be able to explain it to us. I unfortunately will not not have any masters in physics like uh, Robert Pattinson's character in this movie. I don't think I'll be able to explain exactly what's happening, but I can explain um, why I surprisingly really like this movie, and I think that. Uh, not you know not my favorite movie of the year, not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but I definitely think that it is worth uh, a watch and and much more than the pretty bad press that it's gotten. So if I may distill uh, my kind of opening point to maybe a Christopher Nolan level kind of cool, distanced, uh, unemotional reflection on it, you know what is it that that I kind of expect from or hope to get out of you know really accomplished artists like Nolan? It's uh, an experimentation in form with like an attempt to get at some pretty profound and thought provoking and emotionally affecting ideas. And I think that Nolan manages to do that here in the, in the trappings of a genre. I mean, he's, he's a genre filmmaker at his core. He's called a, you know, a blockbuster auteur. If 
you know, Memento is, uh, you know, great neo-noir and we've got the space time travel movie of Interstellar. I mean, here we have a bit of a, a neo-bond or a neo-Mission Impossible, a kind of international spy thriller that is much more interested in, you know, these these great Nolan themes of identity and time uh, than in reenacting the Cold War or something like that. I do think that, you know, the combination of just the immaculately composed set pieces of the opening opera heist, um, the subsequent kind of torture of the protagonist uh, on the, the train tracks, this incredible car chase uh, that rivals anything in the Fast and Furious where they're trying to get who even knows what's in the car, but the way that it is orchestrated combined with, again, kind of like with, you know, what I said about the the chugging of the Coke in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, some images that Nolan and a cinematographer are able to craft that I just can't get out of my head. Um, one is the backwards moving waves when the protagonist first moves into, you know, whatever realm of reality allows him to go backwards. Uh, and the, you know, this, this concept that Nolan has created a movie that is, you know, filled with flashbacks that take place in the present tense, which just kind of boggles my mind. I mean, there are a number of fight sequences where, you know, I won't say exactly who's fighting who, but there are different, uh, different, different, different spheres of time or something that are taking place within one sequence. And I think that managing to, to put that together, to explore, you know, different, different types of time playing out in one place, all in the capsule of this genre that has to hurt certain, hit certain marks to, you know, make the, the bond and mission impossible people, you know, happy and recognize the, you know, the big Soviet baddie who talks too much and has these really extravagant ways to torture people. Uh, and, I, I think I think that there is enough in here and that it is well made enough that it's a really enjoyable and thought provoking movie. I think that where it really fails uh, in comparison to other Nolan movies and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is that I didn't care at all about the relationships between any of the characters. And that is going to be a huge stumbling block for anyone getting involved in any kind of narrative cinema or whatever. I mean, in, in Mount Rainey's Black Bottom, you care what happens to the people and how they interact with one another. In this, even though I enjoyed every scene, I enjoyed thinking about it, I just didn't care. Didn't care about what really happened to the characters or how they related to one another. And I think that's a, a big problem. Yeah, I, I you sort of stole, you stepped on my line there because that that is sort of essentially my problem with this movie is that, I mean, first of all, there's just this kind of tremendous amount of work involved in trying to understand what's going on. And so you have to have some reason to do all that work. And, and I just want to say, yeah, um, Mercy's a total space nerd. I'm enough of a physics nerd so that when a minor character named Wheeler appeared and they kept saying her name, I thought, oh, that's a joke about John Archibald Wheeler, who's, you know, one of the more kind of interesting, he's, he's the kind of physicist who would want to think about some of the things that are thought about uh, in, in this movie. But, you know, at a certain point, I just thought, I don't care enough about how this resolves although i mean the end of the world and all existence and <laughs> is one of the possible outcomes but i mean just in terms of these characters and what happens to them and stuff like that you know i i just don't care enough about how this whole movie works to try to make myself understand it to keep track of what's being thrown at me and and you know i i, I feel mercy like there's some way in which they have to pay you off periodically during a movie like this. Like, okay, here's a little something and here's another little something that'll A, help you understand and B, make you like this movie enough so that you are going to think a little bit harder about what's being talked about now. But I sort of, sort of felt like Christopher Nolan didn't really care whether I liked his movie or not. 
No, he didn't care. I, I, I it, and for me, I think that there were the most interesting scene here was the opening scene in the um, with the orchestra. Yes. For me, I'm like, oh, this is this is about to take me on a ride. We've got what seems to be the makings of a mass shooting happening at sort of a symphony orchestra, um, and I'm like, this, I'm excited. I'm I'm on board for this. And uh, you know, generally speaking, I don't like action films. A little bit about me. Action movies make me really sleepy. Um, whether I'm watching them at home or in theater, I just get really tired um, in watching them. But I was like, all right, let's go. We're on this roller coaster. And then from there, I think it just went downhill. Um, and maybe, you know, there- Mersey, you could, you could just say a little something about its auditory uh, effect on you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, it's too, it was too loud. I, 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 you know, I, as I've turned 30 this year, I think that I am um, becoming sensitive in certain ways. And one of those is my ears. My ears are certainly becoming more sensitive than I expected them to be at 30. And I kept saying, this is just too loud. The dialogue and the scoring don't match. And I keep needing to lean in. And I have no idea what any of these actors are saying. And I have to watch it with the captions on. And are they whispering on purpose? I don't like any of this. But because I grew up in a Pentecostal church, I'm really accustomed to falling asleep when I hear loud sounds. And this is exactly what this movie did to me. And so I had to watch it in two different sittings because I fell asleep during the first one. And I think part of the reason I fell asleep, one, was because this, you know, uh, audio cue to do so. But then two, a bit of Tom's point, I didn't care enough about any of the characters. I didn't care enough about the wife who was in this, you know, loveless marriage um, that escalated to abuse. I, I actually didn't care about her storyline. I didn't care about the protagonist storyline. I didn't care about any of these characters enough to want to stay awake and finish the film. Yeah, check out the night manager because she's in a similar I also, situation. I, I think with... the, the one thing that I will add is I'm going to compare this this uh, this film in the way of thinking of it alongside the other things that are presently in my iTunes purchased list. Um, one of them is Mars. One of them is Interstellar. One of them is A Thousand Ways to Die in the West. And I think this, for me, is more along the lines of A Thousand Ways to Die in the West than it does any of the other two. Well, all those movies, you have to play them backwards in order to judge them fairly <laughs> against this thing uh, and play all the music backwards, too, while you're at it. I, I do. I think one thing we have to take a break here. We're uh, really screwed up the clock. I think one thing that we could all agree on. That's an audio Robert, thing happening. I can't quite hear anything. OK, that um, I think another thing that's happened, another thing we could, could all agree on is that Robert Pattinson is a bit of a revelation in this. He's really terrific uh, and, and, and sort of cryptic and self-contained in a way that's very appropriate uh, for the movie itself. It feels like he knows a lot more than we do and maybe than anybody else does. And it's fun to watch him. All right. We got to take a break. The movie's Tenet. Watch it. Don't watch it. Uh, I don't really care. But I think Tom, Tom thinks you should watch it. So watch it. And uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has already announced that whoever did Robert Pattinson's hair has won an Oscar before there even are any Oscars. So um, 
Uh, we, we, I want to thank uh, the two people heavily involved in the show. Uh, one of them is Ratapgrak, which is Cat Pastor backwards. And uh, I, I'm not going to try to say Jonathan McPants backwards. Uh, but uh, Cat's in the studio making the whole thing happen. Uh, and Pants is the person putting the whole show together uh, and uh, coaxing us and coaching us through all of this. Our guests are Tom Breen and Mercy Quay. We're going to make some recommendations for you now. Uh, and let's start with Tom. What are you going to uh, endorse? I'm going to quickly endorse two of my favorite movies of the year, since we are nearing the end of the year, um, both much smaller uh, than Tenet uh, and also my Rainey's Black Bottom. The first is called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always uh, by the director Eliza Hittman. It's a neorealist film about a 17-year-old girl in rural Pennsylvania, uh, becomes pregnant, uh, wants an abortion, and has to travel to New York City to get it with her best friend and cousin. Uh, it is just an, in an incredible and devastating look at all of the bureaucratic hurdles that she faces in trying to get that medical procedure, and what a, a star-making bit of, of acting by, by the lead there. And the second is The 40-Year-Old Version, another small independent movie by Rada Blank about um, a, a rapidly aging young playwright in New York City uh, who who switches over to um, to, to making a mixtape, to trying to become a rapper, to, to kind of try to retain creative control over her work uh, and take pride in her work once again. Um, and then the very last thing I want to recommend is that Lucy Gelman, uh, my partner and the editor of the Arts Council or the Arts Paper, routinely writes every year about the August Wilson monologue competition. Uh, it's a national thing, but it's about the New Haven instance. Just Google New Haven Arts August Wilson monologue competition, and you'll see how much August Wilson's words still mean to young people in New Haven. It's uh, it's great. All right. Uh, and Mercy Quay, what do you have to recommend to us? Um, so uh, actually stemming off of watching... Um, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I am recommending a book by Isabel Wilkerson, um, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a beautifully um, written uh, catalog of experiences of Black folks from the uh, Great Migration. Um, and she covers a couple of folks who ended up um, moving to Chicago as well. So there's a through line there I think could be really interesting. I picked it up again this summer to read. And I think um, as some additional and sort of supplementary augmented reading for um, Ma Rainey's Black Rock Bottom, Warmth of Other Suns would be great. Um, and then finally, to stay on brand for me, um, if I haven't recommended this already, but it actually just come, came out, so maybe I haven't, Moonbase 8, um, a Showtime series that if you have Hulu, you should be able to get um, that is about a, a moon-based project um, with three individuals. It starts off with four, um, and it's not a spoiler to say so, um, and it features Fred Armisen, um, John C. Riley, and uh, Tim Heidecker, um, who are three volunteer um volunteer astronauts or quasi-astronauts who uh, decide that they're going to spend a year on a moon base in the middle of the desert to test out the limits of human um, capacity to stay on a moon base um, and antics ensue. It is hilarious. And if you like the comedy of John C. Riley or Fred Armisen, this is definitely up your alley. All right. So um, I don't usually use other episodes that we're doing to make recommendations, but I think I'm going to do it this time. On New Year's Eve, we are going to uh, be airing our annual jazz special where we, uh, we have sort of jazz savants pick out the best jazz of the year. And what I am repeatedly reminded of is 
how much incredible jazz is made here in Connecticut by Connecticut artists. Uh, I mean, the the people who do the picking uh, are two of them are jazz musicians in Connecticut, uh, Noah Berriman and Jen Allen, both of whom have amazing albums out this year. But just as you survey the the jazz landscape and see all of the people who've gone through like the Hall High School Jazz Program in West Hartford or the Jackie McLean Institute, which is part of the Hart School or Wesleyan's unbelievable jazz program, uh, you just see so so much incredible uh, rich music so uh yeah listen to the show on new year's eve or listen to it as a podcast when, whenever you can uh look at the playlist I, I think the stuff that they picked out this year is especially nurturing and enriching at a time when when jazz really kind of can get into your soul uh, and do some wonderful things uh and uh yeah it's not the jug band music that uh that chadwick boseman's character complains about uh, nor is it ma rainey's blues uh, nor is it the, the swing that gets uh, pirated by white entrepreneurs. It, it, it's a very, very real Connecticut product here by amazing musicians. And uh, I just want to just sort of take a moment to celebrate. People don't think of Connecticut and jazz. You know, they think of us as very buttoned down and stuff like that. But boy, the jazz scene here has been for decades and decades a, a thing that we should be very, very proud of. And I'm very proud of the show today. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for producing Cat Pastor, for being there in the studio for us and to our two great panelists, Mercy Quay and Tom Breen, and we will be talking to you very soon. Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah